Welcome to episode nine of the Axiom Podcast. back to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm Joey Brandon, your host, and today we're going to be talking about the one-page plan. This is something that has helped me a lot in my business. It's part of what I do with the clients that I work with on a consulting basis, but it's one of those things that I wish I would have done a lot sooner. Uh, it's, it's the kind of thing that when you say, is there something you would have done different? It's definitely on that list. And I remember when when I first started out, I was trying to do a lot of networking. And um, I was on different chambers of commerce and different committees and that kind of stuff. And one of the things that I got roped into doing was sitting on the small business committee, which was a lot of fun because we got to do education with small business owners. We got to do uh, – one of the things that we did was an annual small business of the year contest. And they had different categories based on – your revenue, um, you know, how many employees you had, that kind of stuff. And so we would take nominations throughout the year, and we would uh, we'd vote on We'd kind of get together as a group, and we'd weed through all the nominations. And then we'd bring the finalists in for interviews. And we, we had this cribbed list of questions that we would go through, and sometimes we would, like, take times asking them. Sometimes we would skip them. But there was, there was one question on that list – that kind of became the litmus test for me personally. And and I would judge the character of the person sitting in front of me. I would judge the competence, their competency as a business owner. I would judge their level of intelligence all by the answer to this one question. And you might say, wow, this must have been a really insightful question. Uh, or you might say, well, it was a really lousy question because there's no way that you could infer all of that from the answer to one question. But I did, and and it became personal to me. And I did this for like two or three years. And every year, there was an answer that somebody could give to this question that just sent me over the edge every time I heard it. And, And so here's the question. The question was, if you could do anything different, if you could go back from the time you started this business and do anything different, what would it be? And here's the answer that automatically sent you to the very bottom of my list as a candidate. It, it was the people who would say, I wouldn't change a thing. And I, and I would slap my forehead and I'd be like, are you freaking kidding me? That, that either makes you the most brilliant person in the world or it makes you a complete idiot. It's, in my mind, it was one or the other because it, it either makes you the most brilliant person in the world because it means that you've never screwed up anything as a business owner. So you don't need to go back and change anything. Or it makes you an idiot because you have the ability to go back and fix a mistake. You know, you've learned from the mistake that you made. When you're going to do it again, you're going to you, you go back and you would change that decision or that action, but you choose not to. I'm just going to I'm going to make the mistake one more time. And that just dumbfounded me because, and here I am sitting there, and at this point, this was early after I had started my own accounting firm, and. Man, I made all kinds of mistakes. I and I, that's what I tell my consulting clients now. It's like, hey, don't be embarrassed about your screw ups because I guarantee you, I got one better. I've done everything wrong that you've done. Um, yours may have a couple more zeros behind it, but that's the only difference. I've screwed up in every way imaginable. And if I, if they were asking me that question, my response would be, hell yes. There's a whole. <laughs> how much time do you got? There's all kinds of stuff that I would go back and change. And it just it, it I'm getting all of those soapbox here, but that just drove me crazy. It's like if you had the chance, you wouldn't. So what we're talking about today is something that if I had the chance to go back and do over, I definitely would do that. And here's why. A little bit of my history. When I started, uh, I I jumped off and did my own thing. Um, I, I started an accounting firm, a tax and accounting firm. We focused on small businesses. Businesses that were – we had small mom and pops under a million bucks. But we were really trying to get companies that were like a million to 20 million, million to 15 million, somewhere in that range. That's what we wanted. And we did tax and accounting services for those clients and controllership stuff. What I, what I really wanted was 
to be able to do consulting work inside those companies to help them with projections and forecasting and strategic planning. But what I really knew how to do at the time was tax work. I was a CPA and grew up as a tax manager. And so that was a, that was a skill that I had. It was a, it might as well have been a trade, you know, like painting houses or, or, or making furniture or something. It was just something that I knew how to do and it, and it was able to pay the bills and it allowed me to pay those bills while I was developing this new ability to go out and do consulting with clients. Well, that took me from the time I started out on my own until the time that I sold the tax and accounting firm and started doing the consulting work that I love to do full time. That took me uh, seven years to go through that process. And had I, if I had it to do over again and I could go back and I could do for myself and for every one of my consulting clients what we're going to talk about today, I think that I could have have taken that from seven years down to two years. I could have, and that's a big deal when you're in your thirties and you could get five years of your life back. That's huge. And when you're talking to business owners, this stuff becomes very personal because that's what you're talking about. I mean, you're talking about making changes in their world, in their business, in their life that can give them, you know, four, five, six, ten years back. Uh, in the prime of their life, when their kids are young and they can do stuff at school and they can coach teams and they can travel and they can do all that stuff and enjoy their time with their spouse. They don't have to wait until they retire to do that kind of stuff. And this is what we're talking about. So why why would I – you know, you might go, well, heck, if you could go from seven years to two years, why couldn't you just do it out of the gate? Well – that has to do more with the kind of work that I do, and it's like any other skill. It takes time to develop, and there were I needed those two years to develop the skill. But had I spent the two years developing the skill and done this stuff we're going to talk about today, life would have been much easier for me. So what we're talking about is the one-page plan. And when I ta- when I say the one-page plan, it sounds like this uh, Word or Excel template that you can, you know, I could email out to you and it would make your life easier. And you go, oh, give me that. You know, we love tools. We love to be able to just take something and plug and play and make life easier. But, and and I have some of that stuff. I, I you know, in the systems that we develop for the business I run now, um, we definitely have all kinds of Word templates and Excel documents and and helps and apps and that kind of stuff that we use to facilitate the strate- the strategy and the execution that we do. But when we're talking today about the one-page plan, what we're really talking about is the I, the concept, kind of the system of being able to have uh, the big picture and the kind of the runway view all on the same page. And so what I mean by that is I'm a big fan of of Simon Sinek since he wrote that book a couple of years ago, Start With Why, because that kind of gets at the heart of what we would start talking to business owners about. It's like, why are you doing this? You know, why, if if owning a business were easy, everybody would be doing it. It's incredibly hard. So why? What is it that compels you to do what you do for as many hours as you do it and for hard for as hard as you do it and to make the sacrifices that you do? What is that? Why are you out here? And Senec does a great job, I and mean, that's a fantastic book to go out and read if you own a business because it really – it kind of recharges the batteries at the same time that it gives you some very practical things that you can start to work on. But this idea of the one-page plan has both the why all the way down to what am I going to be working on this week or what – more importantly, what should I be working on this week? And getting that on one page, I don't care how big the – it could be a freaking poster board for all I care. But getting it in one spot where you see it on a weekly basis can accelerate what you're trying to do more than almost anything else short of going out and hiring people to do it for you. I mean by far and, – and I'm not joking when I say that. When, when you're trying to grow rapidly – and you have unlimited capital, it's fairly easy. You go out and you hire the people to do the things that need to be done. But the reality for most businesses and business owners is that the stuff that they're being 
uh, tasked to do and as part of this growth plan is in addition to all the other stuff that they have to do. And they don't have limited re- unlimited financial resources, so they can't just go out and hire the people to do it. So what you have is a situation where I have this plan that w- that I've worked hard to put together because I think I know what I need to do to, to get from point A to point B. But I have all this other stuff that I have to do that's also competing with the the time that I have available to do it. So how am I going to – manage that. Well, managing that is one thing. And I recommend, you know, Stephen Covey's book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People to, to help with that. I would recommend David Allen's book, um, the, uh, what's it called? Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. Those are both good things about the basic tools of what uh, what will help you be more effective. But the problem for most businesses and business owners is the stuff just kind of fades to the back burner. If it doesn't stay front and center and it doesn't become part of a regular process, then it just fails to get noticed. So what what we're talking about is the other side of strategic planning. And and I'll go back to what I said earlier about why did I need that two years uh, at the beginning of that seven-year journey? Like it could could have been two years instead of seven years, but it was going to have to be two years. And the reason that that it had to be two years is because I had to develop the skill set to go into companies and do uh, the creative part of the planning process. And that's a skill set. It's it's very similar to the skill set I had to learn when I was doing tax management uh, or acting as a tax manager and preparing and reviewing tax returns and helping clients with tax planning and doing tax research. That's a skill that you develop over time, and it it part of its education. And the book knowledge, and part of it is experience, and part of it is experimentation. But it's definitely something that you just work at again and again and again and again. And over time, you get you develop a skill and you become very competent at it. Well, I needed that two years to develop competency at planning. And when we talk about strategic planning, that's the fun part, right? That's the part where everybody goes offsite for a couple of days and. You have maybe a, a team building exercise or a golf outing or something like that, and then you get everybody in a room with a bunch of whiteboards and flip charts, and you start imagining what this business is going to be, what you're going to try to make it become. And that's a highly, highly creative process because it's all happening up here. It's all in your imagination. You're not. It, it's not something you can touch right now. It, it may not even exist. The markets may not be there. The product may not be there. The division in your company may not be there. Whatever you're imagining that you want to create, you're going to have to create. By definition, it doesn't exist yet. And it's very highly creative work. That's one of the reasons I love it so much. It's like it's always different. No two companies are the same. No two plans within the same company are ever the same. And to to think that way and to develop the skills to uh, get others to think that way and facilitate those meetings. It took me a good two years of doing it every single week, meeting with a new client or different client to walk them through this process of doing strategic planning and different team members and understanding how different personalities play or don't play well together. And over the two years, I developed that skill. There was one other skill that was very helpful in that, and that's all of the work that you have to do before you step into the room to do, to do the planning, the due diligence, the analysis, um, understanding the industry. You know, If you're in a mining industry and you want to do strategic planning, even if you've been in it 20 years, you're going to have to do some legwork ahead of the meeting to understand what are recent changes in the industry, what, what are your competitors doing, how has that changed over the last 9 to 12 months, uh, what are your local um, – you know, planning commissions doing. What's the attitude of local politicians toward your business? What are the what's the land ownership situation? Where's your next lease going to come from? All of that's all of those unanswered questions. You know, you're going to have to spend some time getting those answered. And so, the other thing that I I developed as a skill during that first two years is how to do the due diligence and how to do the analysis and basically how to come into the room prepared so that we're going to have the raw material to be able to do a planning process. And, you know, I'm still getting better at that, but I don't, 
I don't think I would have been what I would call competent at it without that first two years. So that is the creative skill part of things. And then when that's over, you move into the actual execution piece, and that's all discipline. I mean there's some skill to it, but it's mostly coaching skill about how to get people unstuck and how to deal with objections and how to get buy-in and all that kind of stuff. But the actual execution, it's just a discipline, and that's what I was missing in years three, four, five, six, seven. I mean I think I started to develop it probably in years six and seven, and that's what gave me the confidence to sell my bread-and-butter business of the tax work and just go full-time on the consulting piece. But that discipline is what we're talking about today, and that's what the one-page plan brings to the table. You've all been in strategy workshops or company retreats or um, planning meetings where the whiteboard gets filled up or the flip chart gets filled up, and that's it. You know, it's like you don't even know what happened to the flip chart pages, right? I mean, that was always a big question of mine. It's like, what do they do with all that crap? Um, you know, the whiteboard, you spend six hours putting crap on the whiteboard, and at the end of the day, the facilitator walks up and just wipes it all away. And you're like, well, you know, what are we going to do with this stuff? Well, and it, in some companies, that's all that happens. It was, you know, it was an intellectual exercise, and that's it. In other companies, you know, there's a committee that gets put together and they type all this stuff up and they have, you know, maybe detailed transcripts of the recordings and everything goes in a big three, three inch, three ring binder and it sits on a shelf and nobody ever pulls it out again. Well, that's not what we're talking about. That, that's, that's not effective and I don't get paid to go into companies and not be effective. So we had to come up with a different way to do it. And the discipline side of it is, a, a huge part of it is this one-page plan approach. So I'm going to give you a couple of case studies of how this has worked inside real companies. And these are these are clients of mine, so I have firsthand experience with them. But you'll see one is early on, and, and it's, a, it's a good example of one of my screw-ups of how I didn't handle things right and how the client paid the price for that in terms of not getting results. And the second one is more of a success story where the discipline process paid off very well and is and and it's kind of come full circle and you'll see what I mean by that when we get there. So this first company came to me um, and, and this company was in what we'll call the emergency services business. So if your water heater breaks while you're on vacation and you come home to three inches of water in your house, these are the guys you call. And there are franchises like uh, ServePro or Service Master or, or those kinds, and this was this was not a franchise; it was an independent operator. And the owner of this opera, this company came to me, and he told me his story. And we'll call him uh, I'll call him Bill for lack of a better term uh, or name. But Bill came to me and he said he, he told me a story. And Bill was a very entrepreneurial guy. He he loved to find opportunities and exploit them. He was kind of – he had bright, shiny object syndrome in a bad way, and you'll see how that came back to haunt us uh, later. But but in this instance, to get into this business, it, it really helped him. So he was in the industry working for somebody, and he – the name of the game in the emergency services business is equipment. If you can get equipment – when equipment is needed, then you're, you can basically charge what you want to and have no shortage of business. And because it's a service business, it's very high margin. And so what Bill did is he went out on a limb uh, one summer, and here in Florida, summer is hurricane season. And he, he had kind of done some background work to get relationships with the manufacturers of this equipment. And the equipment we're talking about is basically dehumidifiers and fans that can you know, dry out carpets and carpet padding and um, all that kind of stuff. So he had these relationships. And as soon as the first storm kind of broke through the Gulf of Mexico, he was able to secure all the equipment that they had on hand, like in stock at that point in time. And these manufacturers kind of make product to order. 
Um, but they all also have shelf stock sitting there just to, to fill regular orders. But when they see a storm coming in too, they know more people are going to want equipment or disaster or you know flooding on the Mississippi, that kind of stuff. They'll start to make more of this stuff. Well, Bill had already done the work to kind of secure the orders. And so when he said, I need it, they shipped it. And the first storm that came through South Florida that year hit around Port Charlotte. And he took 90-some fans and two dozen dehumidifiers down there and worked solid for two or three weeks. And by the time he was done, he basically had that equipment paid for. And that's a big deal because this stuff will last seven years at a minimum. And with proper maintenance, a lot of times you get 10 years out of this equipment. And so he had you know, 10 more years left on the life of this equipment, and it was free and clear. We also had... He may not have been able to, I don't recall exactly, but he may not have been able to pay for it with that one storm. But that year, we had four storms come through Florida. And by the end of the year, certainly, he had he had more than paid for that equipment. It was a very profitable year for him. But he was kind of just a solo operator. And he had this business model at the time where he was kind of dependent on the big storms or the big events coming through, and he was smart enough to know, well, that's really not going to cut it. So he found a couple who owned this emergency services business, and he got to know them, and he said, I got an idea. You guys are getting older, and you could probably use a partner because one day you're going to want to sell, and uh, your equipment's pretty old, and I've got all this brand-new equipment. Why don't I contribute my equipment to your business, and I'll become your new partner? And they said, well, it sounds good to us. So that's what they did. He became their minority partner. Well, over the next two to three years, they started to pay him quite a bit of money. In fact, they were paying him way more than he could earn on the market. And after about two or three years, they said, you know what? You are right. We're kind of tired of this, and we want to sell, and we're going to go find a buyer. And Bill looked at his situation and said, there's no way that if a buyer comes in here, yeah, I'll get a little bit of money in my pocket because I have a minority interest in the business, but I'm not going to be able to make you know, $80,000 uh, when there are plenty of people willing to do what I do for half that. And this new owner is going to write me a check and say, thanks, but no thanks. Um, I'm going to replace you as an employee. So Bill found himself in a position where he really needed to buy the business in order to preserve his paycheck. So he, they said, well, this is how much we want for it. He didn't hire anybody to come in and take a look at whether the business was actually worth that or whether it was going to be able to support the note payments. He just was concerned about preserving his next paycheck. So he signed on the dotted line and became the owner of the business. And things went well for a few months, maybe maybe a year, and then the market started to turn down. We didn't have storm we didn't have we haven't had any major storms really since then in this part of the state. And it he didn't have that big catastrophic event to put a jolt of cash flow into the business. The business had some operational challenges, and pretty soon it was missing note payments. And that's when he walked into my office, and he said, I need help, or I'm gonna, they're going to have to repossess this business. So we did all the creative stuff. He came in. We did the planning work. We came up with some strategies that we thought would, would basically turn the business around or improve margins to the point that it could become profitable profitable enough to make the note payments. And we started work. And we would meet, sometimes we'd meet every week, but at least once a month we would get together and we would go over what we had planned to do that month. And in a month where we had planned to do X, Y, and Z, Bill would come in and he'd done X, but he didn't do Y and Z because he installed new GPS tracking monitors in all the vehicles. And that that was a major project that required his time. And so we go, oh, okay, well, let's, I mean, we got to get Y and Z done. We said these are important. So he'd go away and he'd come back a month later. And Y was done, but Z wasn't because he had outfitted all of the service techs with new smartphones that could take pictures and video of the property every time they stopped in and, and upload it to a a customer portal or something like that. And, you know, this bright, shiny object syndrome constantly had him distracted and derailed from what we said we were going to do. And at the time, probably because I didn't want to admit my own failure, I chalked it up to Bill's lack of focus and his inability to focus. 
Now I have the same types of clients, but we're able to to be successful with them and executing X, Y, and Z in the month that they're supposed to happen. And the way that we do it is by using this one-page approach because what's important to me as the consultant who's charged with executing the plan and making it happen, what's important to me is the plan and the execution. But what's important to the client a lot of times, like in Bill's case, what was important to him was the tools. He loved the tools. He absolutely – I mean if you talk to him about a new software app, a new piece of hardware, a new piece of equipment in the field, um, you know, he, he got into a new technology in the industry and sunk like 50 grand into it. And this is a hard – this is when we we're having a hard time making a $15,000 note payment. So you know, what was important to me in the execution of the plan, I was not able to communicate to him how that was important to the overall – achievement of what we were ultimately trying to accomplish in the business. And that's what a one-page plan approach does. It keeps the owner's focus not only on what we're trying to get done, X, Y, and Z, but all the way back to why we're trying to do this. in the first, Why did we get into business in the first place? Why, why are we putting up with all of the heartache and struggle and and capital requirements and everything else that we have to live with. Why are we doing all of that? And if you'll commit to this kind of one-page process, then it allows that stuff to stay in focus all the time. And when the bright, shiny object comes in, the owner is able to kind of put the blinders on and go, yeah, I know that that looks cool, but we've got to get these three things done this month because we're trying to change the world in this way. And ultimately, you know, that's that's what it's about. Why are you doing what you're doing? Because if you can't if you can't achieve that, if you can't fulfill that why, then you end up pretty disgruntled, and that's where you start ticking off all the years of your life that have been lost to this business. So that's what we're we're trying to avoid. So in that case, we didn't have something that was able to help Bill see the relevance of what we're trying to accomplish that month in the grand scheme of things. In another situation. This is another service industry business. Um, we did have the tool to to allow the big picture to be kept in focus, and it paid off huge dividends. So this company, uh, when they came to us, they had been humming along at about two to three million dollars in revenue. Well, about two million dollars in revenue, and they grown. They were ten times the size they were when the business owner purchased the business from the founder, and so. This key employee purchases the business. It's around $250,000, and he grows it over the next, call it seven, eight years, to a $2 million business, might be 10 years, $2 million business. And then for five years, it just sits at $2 million, and it doesn't move. And it didn't move because he was basically kind of happy. I mean, everything was going fine. He had a great business. Uh, Employees loved him. The, The community loved him. Uh, he'd done some pretty innovative things in the industry, but always at this $2 million mark. And so as we talked and, and I started to ask some probing questions kind of in the prospecting phase, he started to understand that the only reason that he was at $2 million was because he was happy being at $2 million. And he started to understand, you know, well, we could be a $3 million company or $4 million or $5 million. And so the more we talked and then he, he brought us in and he said – Here's what I want to do. And we, we went through the whole vision planning thing. We, we spent a lot of time interviewing the key leadership figures in the business, a lot of time interviewing him and family members. And what came out of that is we want to be a top 100 company in our industry nationwide. And for, the, for that industry, it meant about $5 million in revenue. And so we're, we're going to have to more than double the size of the company from $2 million to $5 million. And so we did the planning and we picked out some strategies that we felt like gave us the best chance to accomplish that in the time frame that we are working toward. And those strategies were uh, acquisitions, targeted uh, business line revenue growth. So there were about three or four different types of uh, revenue streams that came into the business, different product services that were sold. And so we felt like, in, you know, and for instance, one of those, we might be able to grow that 
300%. Another one, we're going to be able to grow 20%. Another one, we're going to be able to grow 50%. So we had different kind of metrics and expectations for the growth in each one of those areas. And we knew what we were going to have to get quota-wise out of salespeople to achieve that and what we we're going to have to do marketing-wise to support them so that they could have a good, reasonable chance at success. And then the uh, – so we had acquisition, targeted business line revenue growth, and retention, customer retention. Uh, because and, – and this wasn't so much dealing with actual revenue growth as it was, hey, if we can't retain customers, then we're probably not leaving a very good taste in their mouth. And we're right now we're at the industry average for retention, but we don't want to be average. We want to be exceptional. So if we want to be exceptional, it means that people should leave us at a much lesser rate than they leave the general industry. So they had a retention target that was an improvement over what they currently had. So we do all the planning. Uh, we get it on the, on the page. We also uh, start to talk about – if this is the plan for the next 10 years, five to 10 years, um, they said 10 initially. I said I think five is more in line with what I see. And uh, and, and a year in, they came around to my way of thinking and said, yeah, you're probably right. We, I think we can do this in five. But we had – so we had like the five-year plan even though they didn't know it at the time. And we had the what are we going to do this year like what does the what are the numbers supposed to be this year for us to know that we're on track to hit that mark and then we got into what are we going to be doing this quarter what's the major push this quarter what do we need the team to understand about what we're trying to accomplish and what are the specific projects that each one of the leaders needs to be responsible for to make this stuff happen i mean we did the full monty it was the the whole the whole enchilada of planning all the way down to what's supposed to happen each week to make sure that we get this plan put in place. And it worked. I mean, this, this stuff really does work. And they went from 2 million to two and a half million from two and a half million to 3 million from 3 million to 3.2 million, but somewhere around 3 million on the road to 3 million between two and a half to 3 million, the growth started to tax some of the basic systems of the company, customer service stuff started to break, um, not so much technology-wise, but just business process-wise. Sales stuff started to break. Operationally, stuff started to break. The, op, you know, the people who are responsible for delivering the service, in some cases, couldn't keep up with the new starts being brought in from sales. In some cases, sales didn't completely understand the pricing structure that was supposed to be in place, so they were selling stuff that was making it very difficult for operations to do at a profit. And the team, so we're measuring all kinds of stuff, uh, but you know, the, it wasn't just the top line revenue growth because if that's all we were measuring, that was going phenomenal. But the other stuff that we were measuring, it started to back up some of the anecdotal stuff we were hearing in the the monthly meetings that we were going through to to chart progress on the plan. And so the team said very astutely, hey, we know, we have, we've seen it work now for a couple of years, and we have faith in the process, so we know we're going to get to $5 million. We're, you know, At first, there might have been a few of us who were skeptical about this, but right now we're pretty sure, uh, we're confident we're going to get there. But what we're a little uncomfortable with is the way that we're doing things right now. We're not happy with the way we're servicing customers. We're not happy with the experience that they're walking away from. We're not happy with the overwhelmed feeling that some of our employees have. So here's what we want to do. We want to take this plan and we want to change it so that we don't we don't position ourselves to really create any more new revenue this year. Now we're not saying we're not going to grow because we have momentum our sales guys are going to keep bringing in new business, but we're not going to focus so hard on the revenue figure. What we really, the number one thing that we don't feel like we're making progress on, and the numbers are supporting this, is retention. And there are some reasons for that. There's some concrete reasons that retention is not what it should be. So we're going to take a time out from the growth plan and we're going to recast this execution piece that we're working on as totally 100% focused on retention. And so we pulled back and we pulled all the revenue growth targets out and we said, 
we're, we know we're going to grow, but that's not the most important thing. We got to figure out better measures for the KPIs on retention. We have to figure out what are the business processes that are going to increase retention and what are the broken ones now that are resulting in cancellations. And we brought the entire focus of the team to bear on that one area of retention. And over the last year, we've seen incredible improvement in that. And now we have the same momentum behind the retention numbers that we previously had behind the revenue numbers. And we're at the point now where we're ready to switch gears again and go back to the focus on the revenue growth and really put our foot to the accelerator and continue the business. All of that was possible because we had in front of us a plan that told us why we were doing what we're doing and also what we were supposed to be doing that quarter to make it happen. And that piece of paper, if, if that's what it's on, is the one thing that keeps the agenda focused on what it's supposed to be focused on at the different uh, times that you're meeting. And so you've heard me talk in the past about this whole idea of rhythm inside organizations and what that looks like. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into it today, but if if you haven't, um, if you're not familiar with that concept, go back and read Vern Harnish's book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. He does an exceptional job of describing everything that we're talking about today. He talks about the rhythm piece, which is what made me think about him. But his whole shtick in that book is about the one-page uh, business plan. When he kind of gets to the meat on the bone in the latter half of the book, he's talking about basically how to get your entire strategic plan on two, two sheets of eight-and-a-half by 11 paper that you can you know put together facing each other. So his one page is 11 by 17. I don't think it needs to be that big. But... Nevertheless, it's one page. And Harnish, I think, you know, and he's been doing this a lot longer than I have, and, and he sells the system as well as the consulting behind it. I prefer for my one pages to be a lot more simplistic, and there's a link in the show notes that you can get to by going to axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 009, and it's the kind of the wireframe for the one-page plan that I use in a lot of situations. Now, there's there's two of them up there. There's one that we use for the goals-based planning, and there's another one that we use for the issues-based planning. But both of those do a fairly good job of keeping the focus on the big picture of why we're doing what we do and also the how, what, and when we're going to be doing it. And um, you can go look at those. Now, they're not Excel templates, and they're, I don't want them to be Excel templates. Because in, in some of those companies, that document exists on a whiteboard that sits in the kind of the war room that we meet in or that the team meets in. Um, in some of those organizations, it's a cloud-based tool that, they, that shows up on their desktop every, every morning. In some cases, it's a piece of paper that gets handed out and filled in uh, with pen and pencil. In some cases, it's an Excel document. So it, the form that it takes is – or the actual media, I guess, that it takes is not important. What's important is that it cover that full gamut and that it, there's a kind of a method to the madness of how it covers it. And, and in my goals-based document, you'll see that we basically start on the left-hand side of the page talking about the why we're doing what we're doing. And by the time we get to the right-hand side of the page, we've covered what the focus is for that particular quarter. So I'll get into, into that in just a second. But when you start to do this kind of work, uh, whether you're doing it for yourself or whether you're doing it inside of companies, what's really, really important is that you understand the distinction between the planning and the execution side of things. And this is one, another one of those things that I feel like I come back and I talk about every single time um, – I speak to a group or when I do a podcast or something like that because it's, it's fundamental to the way that we operate. If you're in knowledge work, this is relevant to you. So it's kind of like you have this switch in your brain, and it's it's not on or off. It's either in one mode or the other. Um, it's you know like a ceiling fan. It's got a switch for forward and a switch for reverse. And you've got one of those in your in your brain, but it's it's a planning or it's an execution switch. And when you're working on 
whatever it is. It could be a tax return that you're preparing. It could be a strategic plan that you're doing. It could be the vendor that I'm about to meet with. You're in a planning mode or you're in an execution mode. Most of us, when we're, we're, we come into the office in the morning, we are in execution mode. Um, most people who feel overwhelmed are always in execution mode. Uh, most people who are um, seem like they just have it all together and they're never stressed out, they spend an extraordinary amount of time in planning mode. And so here's what happens. When, you get, when you're thinking about planning, you're back in that creative space where things don't exist yet. And you're imagining what's going to happen in the future, and you're starting to articulate what needs to happen in order to get certain results. So if I want to finish this tax return in the next two hours, here are the steps that I have to go through. You know, so I have, to, um, I have to get the trial balance reconciled. Well, what do I have to do to get the trial balance reconciled? Well, i got to figure out whether fixed assets tie out to last year before I add new ones. Uh, I have to make sure that cash has been reconciled. I have to go through accounts receivable and make sure there's nothing that should be written off. So you start to – and it becomes – this is the amazing part to me. I still get amazed at this. When I sit down and start putting pen to paper in planning mode, it's amazing how quickly the stuff comes out that I need to do. It's like once that switch gets flipped, it's it's a lot like the ceiling fan. It's you know It's going, it's going, it's going in execution – you decide you want to flip the switch to planning, and does it reverse course immediately? No. The execution starts to slow down, just the same way the ceiling fan starts to slow down, and eventually it stops, and then it slowly starts going back the other way, and you find yourself in planning mode. And eventually, when the, the fan gets up to speed, the stuff is just coming out on the page. And I talked in the time and task management episode about this idea of micro-planning, and that's all this is, is taking time before you start the project to sit down and write all this stuff out. Well, that's what planning looks like. That's what it feels like. That's what you're doing when you're doing this kind of strategic planning work. When you get into execution, all you're doing is looking at that list, and you're letting the list decide what you do next. And we tend to underestimate the amount of mental capital that's invested in deciding what to do next. But it's a lot. A lot of the times people feel unproductive is because they're burning up so much mental capital trying to decide what to do next that they don't have anything left to actually do it. So if you, if you go to planning mode, go into planning mode, and you let the brain in planning mode decide what you're going to do and which order you're going to do it, and then you move over into execution, all of your energy, all of your focus goes straight into making sure that the task gets done. What we're talking about here is just that on an organizational level. So we spend all the time in the planning mode, and once you get the group, once you get the team into planning mode with a good facilitator, it's very easy to get that stuff happening. And then you force them to turn off their critical planning, planning brains and you just say, hey, for the next 13 weeks, we're going to execute the heck out of this. And then we're going to look up and we're going to see whether we've made any progress. And you'll be able to see whether you're making progress and adjust midstream too. But I can't underestimate the value of understanding the switch between planning and execution and how that will make you more effective. So whether you are uh, a sole practitioner, whether you're a, a, a solopreneur at this point, uh, maybe you're freelancing and you want to build the next creative agency. Maybe you're a contractor and you've got one or two guys, but you want to become the next major home builder. What's important is that we can all plan. I mean, that that's the thing that I've learned after doing this for the last 10 years is everybody's capable of planning. Sometimes it takes a good facilitator. Sometimes they're just good at it on their own. But we all love to dream. Once you take the restraints off and get them to suspend reality for a little bit, everybody can plan. What people can't do is execute. And I'm convinced that the reason they can't execute is because a lot of times they simply don't know what to do next. Everybody's good at – can be good at planning, but very few people do it. And fewer people execute on the basis of the plan that they've built. So if you can become one of those people who will execute on the basis of the plan, then you're going to be a lot more successful. But if you're small, 
I would encourage you not to worry about going all the way from why I'm doing this to what's the major theme or contest or KPI that I'm measuring for this quarter because it's inefficient. You don't need all that. Here's all you need. You need to know what you're trying to accomplish for the foreseeable future. And I would say that's about a year, maybe a little bit more. I mean, you, you need to understand why you're trying to accomplish what you want in the next year. But at a minimum, so if I say, so I'll give you my personal story, because this is where I'm at right now. Uh, I started this consulting thing about a year and a half ago. And right now I've got, I'm, I've got a couple of people working for me, but I want that number to be much larger. And I also want that number to be large enough so that the revenue coming in from the engagements that they're involved with and that they're responsible for is able to support me so I can develop more content because there's a second side of this business where I just want to be developing content and getting paid for that. So that's the the vision. Now, why do I want to do that? Well, the reason I the reason I want to do it is my another soapbox moment. It's probably not relevant to what we're talking about, but it may help you understand how your own why fits into. So I, what I want to do, the vision I have is to build a firm that has about five or six consultants working in it that do very high quality strategic planning and execution work. Every one of those can handle about 30 clients. Why do I want to do that? Well, I want to do that because I firmly believe that business is the most creative endeavor on the planet. I think it has more potential to change the world than anything else out there, more than uh, more than social support networks, more than social programs, more than nonprofit groups, more than religious groups. I think if you want to change the world for bet for the better, start a business. I personally, spiritually, am a Christian, and I believe that the best way to do that is to lead people to Christ. But you may not agree with that. But if I have a business. That business becomes an extension of what I believe and how I go about living that out in the world. And my business will impact way more people if, if it's run well and it's grown the way that it should be than almost any nonprofit, certainly more than any church, uh, certainly more than most social programs. So that's why I do what I do. I think business is the most phenomenal vehicle for affecting change that exists. I, I really believe that. And that's why I love spending my time with business owners and, and affecting them with that same belief so they can take their product, their service, their industry, whatever it is, and make it an agent for change in the world. That's why I do what I do. My vision for that is to grow that so that we're serving about 200 businesses across the country. Now, it could get a lot bigger. I would love for it to get a lot bigger than that. But if it's serving those 200 businesses, at that point, I'm able to develop the content to teach a whole new generation of professionals how to do that. And that, I think, that's how I'm going to, that's how I'm going to change the world. I think that there's a group of people out there, there's CPAs. I think that there's a group of people out there that have more potential to go out and do this work than anybody else. They got the financial chops to do it. They have the discipline to do it. They understand process. They just need that same skill set that I had to spend two years developing and I'm still developing. They need a jump start in that skill set so it doesn't take them seven or ten years to do what they really want to do if it's in this strategic planning and execution space. So if that's what they want to do, I want to be the one who gives them the ability to make that happen. And that's how I'm going to change the world. That's why I wake up every morning and do that. And so I understand that. That's that's somewhere where I can see it every day. It's actually right over there. It's on the back of that door. And so every time I walk into my office and I close that door, I see why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, that's up there because... If it wasn't there, I wouldn't see it every day, and I and sometimes I need to see it. Some some days are better than others, but on bad days, I need to see that and, and be reminded why I'm doing what I'm doing. But the the thing that's that's important, okay. But the thing that's most important is what I'm actually going to do today to make that happen. So on the whiteboard behind me, I have my goals for the year, 
and they're broken up into about five different categories that cover everything from business to personal, family life, marriage, that kind of stuff. And next to each one of those goals is the next physical action that I need to take to move that goal to the next level. And this is what I encourage the individual leadership team members to do when we get into execution, is to have a place that they can go and look at every single day that tells them the next physical thing they have to do. And you know what? Sometimes you're going to get in the weeds. Sometimes the what's happening in the business, the fires you have to put out, man, that's, that's going to quench the plan, and you're not going to be able to get to the plan that day. I get it. I mean, that's gonna, that happens to me. Just this morning, you know, Fridays are my kind of day to take a deep breath. It's the day that I love to create content. It's, it's just a low-pressure, low-stress day for me, and it's also the day that I look at that board in the back of that door the most. And I walked up to that board today, and I realized a couple of those things had been done. All right, so I'm like, oh, okay, so that next action was done. I need to move on to the next thing. A couple of the things up there have been up there for a long time. And I'm like, what the heck is – why haven't I done that yet? And I realized there was some resistance to doing whatever that was. And part, in one case, the resistance was not really believing that that was going to get me to the next level or that the next that was the next step. So I changed it. And it's a, it's a different thing up there now because I realized I hadn't done the one that was up there for two weeks. It's, I mean, it's two weeks of no progress on that goal. But it's sitting there staring me in the face, and it's the discipline of having to come back in and look at that board on a regular basis that assures me that at the end of a year, I will have made very significant progress to meeting every one of those goals. So the one-page idea that we've been talking about this entire 50-plus minutes is about keeping the the big stuff front and center so that you'll see it every day, but also keeping the little stuff that's going to move you toward the big thing in front of you on a very frequent basis. You know, you should be looking at that stuff every single day. The why, you may only really sit back and think about that every couple of weeks when you get really philosophical about your business. But I know, let me just see what it is right now. Um, so, Um, so with my boys, I had a goal to, to meet with my boys and have one-on-one, um, time with my boys every week, um, this year. That was kind of a habit that I wanted to develop. And I, I, that's one of those items that I had done everything. I'd done the the last action that was up on that board. I'm like, okay, cool. I got that done. But then I started thinking, Hey, school's out and everybody's schedule is about to change. It's the last day of school here for us. And so I had to change, you know, I thought, well, what's the next thing I need to do to make sure that that continues to happen? And so the next, so we've been in this routine of going to breakfast in the mornings with everybody's schedule changing. I know that what I need to do now is block out some evenings to make sure that that continues to happen. Um, As far as my business goal, I have a specific revenue goal for this year. And I realized when I was looking at that this year or this morning that I hadn't, I had not done the next thing on the list, and I can't even remember what it was now. But I changed it because the most important thing for me hitting the goal right now is I have some outstanding um, engagements that we really need to kind of get the financial terms squared away on those and get those started. And so that's what's up there right now. And I know that's the next thing that I have to do. So if you're if you're a small business, that may be all that you need is just the big picture somewhere in writing where you can see it, the people that you interact with can see it, your family can see it, people who can remind you why you're doing what you're doing. If you have a business coach, you definitely give them a copy of it. Um, and then what's the next thing that you have to do to hit your goals for the year? That's really all that you you need. If I had done that for the first two years that I was in business by myself, I could have made that leap to doing what I love to do five years sooner. So let me just give you a, kind of a quick rundown uh, if you don't go look at the um, the show notes and the samples that are in there. When I break this down, the easiest way for me to do it for clients is usually in terms of time frame. So the why doesn't really have a time frame. It's like why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, I, you know, I believe business is the most creative outlet imaginable 
And, and I just believe that. It's not like I believe that for the next 10 years. That's just something that's a part of me. So that really doesn't have a time component. That's all the way over on the left-hand side of the page. The next thing is my vision for this business. And so uh, and I talked about that service business earlier that we've been doing really well with. Well, their vision was $5 million and a top 100 company in the industry. And so that, you know, in their case, that may only take five years. It could take 10 years. But that was, you know, that's kind of where he's, that's like, wow, you know, that that's as far as I can see this thing going. I think the closer he gets to that, his vision will become greater and greater. But at the time we created the plan, that was his vision. Next is stuff that you hope to do over the next three years or so. And those are basically strategies that you're going to pursue. They may not be benchmarks. They're kind of the things that you're going to change, the things that are going to become cornerstones of your business. So the the two main things that we talked about there for his business were acquisition. So he's going to go out in the market. He's going to acquire smaller operators and consolidate them into his company. And he's going to have retention that's twice the industry average. And then you get into so, – so you start with the why, which doesn't have a time frame. Then you go to vision, which might be 10 years or so. And then you go to the strategies, which are typically about three years. And then you go to the objectives or the goals, and those are one-year items. So in his case, that's 85% retention and $3.5 million of revenue for the year. And then you get into the quarterly stuff. Now, the quarterly stuff is really about as far as you need to go – um, on the organizational wide, and what you do at quarterly is that's what the what the focus of the company is going to be on for that quarter. And Harness really encourages you to come up with a theme for the quarter. And some companies are really cre- this company that I'm talking about is very creative in coming up with their themes and getting people behind the themes. That the theme for retention was retained to gain, uh, and they had this slogan and you know illustration of what that meant and um, that's something that you again you bring the focus of the entire group for three months or in a lot of my planning I'll do trimesters where we we do this three times a year for four months we'll focus on one thing and then you have you get into kind of the brass tacks of what are the numbers that we're measuring monthly it could be a budget it could be a revenue target uh, in our case it was a retention measure and what are the how do those numbers get measured weekly and what you want to get to is something that brings that focus of the group at least weekly to a number, to a measure, to a yardstick, to something that's going to tell them we're doing well or we're not. You have to have a feedback mechanism every week. It has to be every week. And com- Some companies fight me on this. They're like, oh, that's too much trouble. It takes a half hour to put that together, and we, can, we just want to do that once a month. And I'm telling you – we do not work as a species on a monthly basis. Right? We work on a weekly basis. We go to the grocery store once a week. You know, we work out four times or five times a week. Uh, we go to church once a week. You know, there's one Monday, one Tuesday, one Wednesday every week. There's one weekend every week. So you have to build the feedback system around what people are going to respond to. And I believe that that's weekly. So, in the, the plan that we have now, there's a weekly scorecard that gets generated uh, between Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock and Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. There's a, a scorecard that gets mailed out to the key managers, and it tells them where they're at on retention through the previous Saturday. And then you can also, on this plan, if you want, I don't think you have to do this um, because that part of the plan like I said, the, it specifies what you're going to be doing, and it changes every three to four months on that far right-hand side from quarterly to monthly and weekly. What we're going to measure changes every three to four months, um, and that's fine. I mean if you, if you do that, having this one page in front of you on your desk every week will help you understand whether the projects and the tasks that you're working on fit into that or not. But at a minimum, you need to be accountable for – what is the next thing that you have to do that relates to us getting to these numbers? Because every key member of the leadership team is going to have some kind of project or responsibility that was developed for the quarter that's their baby. And what is the next thing you have to do on that project? Where are we at on the project? If they can't tell you what's next, then they're not doing their job. And that's the accountability measure that comes into all this. So 
I don't want to beat this up any more than I have. I feel like we've talked for 60 minutes about stuff that um, you know, maybe could have been covered a little bit shorter. But the reason that I'm passionate about it is because this is really what makes change possible. If you just keep doing stuff the same way you've always been doing it, then you're going to get the same results that you've always had. And, and people hire me because they're not happy with those results. So we've had to develop tools and systems that allow us to chart progress and allow us to keep that front and center every day on a daily basis. And I think that it makes us more successful what we do. I really hope that it makes you more successful at what you do. And if you can use what, we've, what we're doing for your own clients or for your own business, that's what it's there for. That's the biggest compliment we could get. Uh, I would also like to say thanks to the people who have been leaving reviews on iTunes. I uh, really appreciate that. If you leave comments on the uh, show notes page, I'll try to respond to those. But just thanks for listening. This is a lot of fun for me to do. It's a great outlet for me to share some of the stuff that I, I care about and I'm passionate about. And uh, I hope you like it too. Thanks again.